2: I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. Uh, this is the show where we're exploring what it takes to make meaningful change in a country that is as divided as our country has become. You know, we talk a lot about political polarization on the show. That just means you know the left and the right are getting further and further apart, and this has been a deepening phenomenon now for years. But it's really gotten to the point now where you can't ignore it. It's not just that people you know, disagree with the opposite party. Uh, we sometimes see them as our mortal enemies. We're operating from a different set of facts. And many of us are finding it's hard to even trust what's in our own news feeds because things are just so crazy. You know, as we're down our own algorithmic rabbit holes, as I call them, you know, when you're looking at your phone, you know, you're looking at the stuff that's in your feed. But your neighbor's feed may be totally different. I want to bring somebody on whose job it is to cut through all that and to figure out, you know, using the top polling data and programs and methodologies, really, what do people actually think? What do Republicans actually think about anything? What do Democrats actually think about anything? So today I'm talking with Kristen Soltis Anderson. She's a Republican. She's a millennial. Uh, she's a founding partner of a research firm called Echelon Insights. Part of her day-to-day work includes advising corporate leaders, government leaders, on polling, on messaging. But she's undoubtedly has her own view about all this stuff because her job is to listen and understand and to try to capture in an objective, realistic way what is going on. That is very rare.
1: The two groups that were the least likely to have someone who was a close friend, who is of the other political party, were Republicans who think of themselves as Trump supporters first and foremost. And sort of young progressives, if you don't have any close friends of the other's party, when you see an example pop up on social media or on the news of someone of the other side doing something horrible, saying something horrible, being something horrible, it is easy to assume that everyone else on that team must agree with that or hold that view. I am blessed to have friends from when I was growing up who were very progressive who I love dearly, and, and talking to them about issues and me being able to explain why I believe what I believe helps. It doesn't mean I'm persuading them. I'd love to think I was, but I'm sure I'm not. But at least it helps you keep perspective on what does the other side actually think? And isn't there a diversity of opinions within people who all may wear that same label?
2: I want you to listen for how Kristen addresses a bunch of stuff including, number one, the skepticism a lot of people have about pollsters today and how she responds to that. You know, she talks about the concerns of people on the political right uh, from a a real data-informed point of view. Toward the end of our conversation, we talk about how we can turn down the temperature across the board and maybe have a little bit more of a civil uh, discussion about the things that we don't agree about. She's been very smart about that in her own life, and she certainly gets us smarter on this podcast. Stay tuned for my conversation when we get back with Kristen Soltis-Anderson.
1: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles.
2: I am very, very glad to get a chance to talk with you, uh, not on TV, (laughs) which is our usual thing, but to actually maybe have a little bit of a a deeper and longer conversation here on Uncommon Ground. You and I actually met at a time when you were just coming on the scene as a sort of young Republican pollster speaking up for a new generation of conservatives. And you know, the conservative party and movement has gone through a lot of changes since then. The Democratic Party has gone through a lot of changes uh, since then as well. I wanted to start with just you as a pollster today. uh why'd you get started doing this stuff, and how has the game changed uh in you know twenty sixteen twenty 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 two and beyond?
1: So I love being a pollster. I've been in this industry since 2005. It was my first job out of college. It's not the thing that I came to Washington thinking I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to be a speechwriter. I wanted to be a communications professional. I had watched way too much West Wing. (laughs) Oh, I wanted to be Sam Seaborn. like that. I was one of those people. And yet, um, when I came to Washington, wound up getting a job, very entry-level, at a polling firm and loved it because – What I found so compelling about the field is that it's not about my opinions. Everybody in Washington has an opinion. So many people in politics, they've all got opinions. My job is not to be about my opinions. My job is to go out and listen to other people's opinions.
2: When Trump got elected in 2016, that shocked a lot of people because the polls had said that it was either nearly impossible, totally impossible, or completely impossible. (laughs) And yet it happened. What did you learn from that experience? And and how do you see the, I guess, skepticism now that some people have even about uh, your profession, despite your hard work to do it the right way?
1: So whenever somebody tells me, you know, I don't listen to the polls because I think the polls are wrong and they're fake news. I tell them, I don't blame them. The one thing I like to remind people of is that I I think the impression that pollsters go out and try to push a false narrative – is wrong. Because think about what our incentives are. My incentive is to be right. If I had come out in 2016 and said, you know, I think Donald Trump is going to win and here's the data that shows it, people would have thought I was a genius. (laughs) You (laughs) know, there's a strong incentive to get it right. No one wants to be out there pushing data that they think is incorrect to try to further some narrative. Because at the end of the day, political polling, unlike almost every other piece of the polling industry, There's a verdict of, were you right or were you wrong? So after the 2016 election, you know, methodologically, we learned that by sampling the way we were as an industry broadly, we weren't capturing enough voters who didn't have college degrees. And in previous elections, that hadn't been a big deal. It was almost the equivalent of saying, well, I didn't have enough people who are left-handed in my sample. It doesn't necessarily correlate strongly one way or the other with vote, but in 2016, it did. What worries me the most about 2024 is that in 2020, pollsters had fixed that. They were sampling enough people without college degrees. We had fought the last battle and we'd gotten it right, but that didn't necessarily mean everything was fixed. Hmm. And the the good news is since then, there have been a number of elections where the polls have gotten it pretty right. In the Virginia governor's race, for instance. But, But polls are not perfect. And the other big lesson I took from 2016 was humility to be very humble about what we can know in the face of the data. If I get a pullback that says somebody is ahead by three points, there's a margin of error involved Mm. that means that in reality, that person could be ahead by six. They could be, evenly split. And so going on air and confidently saying, ah, well, you know, Joe Biden's job approval fell by two points last month. He's slipping with the public. I mean, that's too bold a claim to make off of a very small data point. So it might make me a less interesting TV guest, but I try to be a little more equivocal and humble about what any one data point can tell us.
2: Well, you know, I, I think that's one reason why you're respected on on both sides in the way that you are. And like I, I came over the '90s, it's never been this kind of rosy walk in the park that everybody wants to pretend it was. It's always been tough. But you know, sharp elbows are not the same thing as chainsaws. I mean, it just seems like now it's different. But am I am I wrong? Do you see that? Does, does the polling data suggest that the parties are moving apart? And if so, what do you make of it?
1: So you're not wrong. Um, Back in the 90s, there was a lot of polarization in Congress, where you had the complete breakdown of Republicans and Democrats ever crossing the aisle to vote with one another. But that was very different than polarization in the electorate, in the public. And we still do have that if you look at what people's views are on the Issues. By and large, a lot of people who think of themselves as Republicans hold some views that you'd consider in line with the Democratic Party and and vice versa. Where the polarization now comes from, I think, is from politics bleeding into a lot of different facets of life to where it feels a bit more all consuming. And at the same time, people feeling more and more powerless in the face of what they view as a hostile other side. When people feel powerless against a powerful adversary, they're more likely to turn to someone who says, I have the answer and I'm willing to take extreme measures to win. It's not that all Republicans believe one set of issues and all Democrats believe another set of positions and and there's no overlap. Instead, it's that people believe if the other side acquires more power, that they will use that power to harm you and that view that the other side is accumulating more and more power, I think is what is supercharging our polarization.
2: Hey, look, you know, the way that I see it is that um, I feel like we actually now have four political parties instead of two. I feel like you have the the mainstream establishment uh, Republicans that, you know, are pretty hawkish uh, militarily, um, pro-global business, you know, like, like free trade. They seem to be shrinking. And there's this other party, the MAGA party, that is, um, you know, hey, tariffs are fine with them. <laughs> Protectionism is fine with them. Don't want to be involved uh, in anything overseas, isolationism. They're both called Republicans, but they're really two different political parties. And certainly on the left, you know, the corporate Democrats hate <laughs> ALC and Bernie, <laughs> and, you know, the uh, younger, more progressive crowd. I think they're Corporate mainstream Democrats frustrated and they have to carry the water for all that stuff, and especially in, in battleground elections. And so I just wonder you know, you as a pollster, I mean, do you see that there's a, there seems to be some ideological confusion here? The labels don't certainly mean the same thing things they used to mean, at least in terms of policy anymore, or, or do you see it differently?
1: There's definitely been an evolution of what it means to be a Republican, but I think the divides within the Republican Party these days are less sharply ideological than the divides on the Democratic side. The divides between the two groups of Democrats you talked about are very clearly around issues. Where on the Republican side, I think you'd find even those Republicans who are kind of Bush-era Republicans would still nevertheless express a little more hesitancy these days to send U.S. troops overseas. Because the world's very different than it was 10 years ago and— Frankly, a lot of Republicans have seen some of the consequences of free trade or whether it was, you know, aggressive use of American military force overseas. You know, there's a little bit more immigration hawkishness, uh, you know, even among what you might call the establishment side of the party. I think the biggest difference is more around sort of tactics and language and posture than it is on policy, where I think on the Democratic side, it's much more about an ideological gulf between the two sides. Mm -hmm.
0: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way.
2: I do think that it's hard for progressives to understand that the conservatives feel outnumbered. Um, and to your point, we, we geez, you guys, you got the US Senate <laughs> is got, you know, states like North Dakota <laughs> would barely have any people in them with two senators, California, New York, tens of millions of people, same two senators. You're certainly well represented in Senate, the House, the Supreme Court, obviously. Democrats beat Republicans, you know, going away by the popular vote. Most presidential elections, we still barely squeak it out in the electoral college. Like, what more do you guys want? Because we're looking at it from the political point of view and the policy point of view. But as you're as you're saying, from a cultural point of view, if you're a 60-year-old conservative white Christian, you have a very hard time just turning the dial on your television and finding your worldview res- reflected back to you in a, an affirming way. Uh, They feel surrounded and outnumbered, overrun and uh, under uh, and disrespected. And in that story, they're the little Davids up against us as a Goliath. That is the hardest thing for progressives to understand (laughs) that anybody would think that we're the, the, the Goliaths in this story.
1: I did a focus group for The New York Times a couple of weeks ago of eight conservative men. And it was less about what do you think about Donald Trump? What do you think about immigration? None of that. It was more, do you feel there's a place for you in society? And what was kind of interesting was these men broadly said, no, I don't feel like there's a place for me in society these days. And then there was a huge backlash to these focus groups because people were saying, you know, why are we elevating the voices of a bunch of men whose voices have been the dominant voice mm. in, in American culture for centuries. And I just thought that whole discussion was so fascinating because in one sense it was confirming that yeah. th- these conservative men's anxieties were right. right. It doesn't mean that they are right about their views on society, but it, it means that their assessment of their place in society was kind of confirmed by the very people who were saying, oh, how dare you do a focus group of these men? Yeah. I, just, I thought that was very fascinating.
2: Well, like I often find myself trying to caution my fellow progressives, be careful that you don't feed what you're fighting. Because when you say to somebody else, you know, your pain doesn't matter a whole bunch to me and I'm gonna be relatively narrowly self-interested, you're creating a certain environment where you're not that different than the people you're fighting. You know, one of the things that I have discovered You know, people say, why are the black people so angry? Man, you know, it seems like the black people are really angry. Why are you guys so angry? You know, the better question is why are black people so afraid? That anger is concealing a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. And if you respond to the anger with anger, you miss the whole point. I think the same thing with the conservative white guys are so angry. Well, what do they have to be angry about? They've been in charge forever. You know, geez, you know, share the ball, buddy. (laughs) You know, I think the, the question with them is, what are you having trouble grieving? Like, why are you sad? That's a better question because it gets to the underlying grief. The grandkids don't look like the grandparents in any U.S. city. (laughs) And, you know, some people feel great about that, other people don't. But I just think that we're in this situation where we as progressives feel we'll be losing ground somehow if we extend a little empathy to the people who were asking to or insisting give up a bunch of stuff. And I don't think we lose anything at all. And frankly, I think that we make it harder on ourselves um, uh, by being so tough on the people that we want to make a change. Does that show up in the polling data? I mean, you, you said that you know some of these guys feel they don't even have a place in their own country.
1: One of the the things that struck me in that focus group was when my co-moderator, Patrick Healy, who's the deputy opinion editor at the Times, asked these men, you know, when was the last time you made a new friend? And a lot of them said, it's not worth it. Like, I'm I'm old enough at this point. I've got people that have been my friends for decades. We don't always agree on everything, but they know who I am as a person. So, you know, politics aren't going to break us up. But going out and trying to make a new friend these days, it's just so fraught. And there's so many things you have to avoid talking about. It just doesn't seem worth it. And so I actually did a, a survey asking people, if you had to guess, you know how many of your close friends do you think are of the other political party from you? And the two groups that were the least likely to have someone who was a close friend who is of the other political party were Republicans who think of themselves as Trump supporters first and foremost, and sort of young progressives. If you don't have any close friends of the other party, when you see an example pop up on social media or on the news of someone of the other side doing something horrible, saying something horrible, being something horrible, it is easy to assume that everyone else on that team must agree with that or hold that view. So, you know, a lot of folks were commenting, well, h- how can you expect me to be friends with someone who doesn't acknowledge my humanity? And and I think, is that what you believe all Republicans want? I think that's an erroneous assumption. I know not all Democrats are the negative caricature you might see in conservative media because I am blessed to have friends from when I was growing up who are very progressive who I love dearly, and, and talking to them about issues and me being able to explain why I believe what I believe helps. It doesn't mean I'm persuading them. I'd love to think I was, but I'm sure I'm not. But at least it helps you keep perspective on what does the other side actually think? And isn't there a diversity of opinions within people who all may wear that same label?
2: And, and I think that that's the key point. You said the word understand. That's the word. Agreement is hard. Like, I don't agree with myself half the time. Agreement is very, very hard. On the other hand, for me, I have friends who are MAGA Republicans, conservative Republicans, mainstream Democrats, left-wing Democrats, beyond left-wing, and I learn so much. In my own positions, I understand myself better and I understand the world better. But if I were just trying to figure out what these people think based on, I don't know, Fox News and, you know, Dan Bongino's podcast, I would have the same messed up perspective on Republicans that some Republicans have thinking that, you know, they can understand what progressives are about by just reading the Wall Street Journal or, you know, listening to Tucker Carlson. If I've got a neighbor that I disagree with, but I know where she's coming from, I understand her. Even if we disagree, we can still be neighbors. If I disagree with her and I don't know where the hell she's coming from, <laughs> it's hard to even be neighbors, let alone, to, you know, to have a nation. So I want to just dig into a couple of things I wonder if you could give us some feedback on as progressives. There are certain topics and certain issues that we've taken a strong stand on as progressives, or at least have been labeled as taking a strong stand on, that I just don't think land the way we think they land beyond the progressive circles. You know, I I just want to sort of, you know, defund the police. That slogan made me a little bit uncomfortable (laughs) because it seemed to basically be F the police with just one more syllable (laughs) in terms of how it landed linguistically. And it seems like maybe if you look at, you know, who's going to win the election here in LA for mayor and you just won in New York for mayor, that, that slogan may have done more harm than good. And yet there was enthusiasm for that slogan from some parts of the progressive left. You know, can you help us think about some of the things that Democrats are doing or positions that we're taking that just from your point of view, we might want to reconsider if we want to have broader appeal.
1: I think number one is recognizing that there are things that make progressives very anxious about America. And that that list of things is very different than what keeps Republicans and conservatives up at night. I've done a lot of polling over the last two years of parents for a group called the National Parents Union. And they wanted to understand how were parents weathering the COVID-19 pandemic. You had a lot of progressives who were very, very, very concerned about the spread of COVID-19 and believed, look, if you are reopening schools and putting kids back in classrooms, we're putting people at risk. And yet, it was oftentimes kids who were the lowest income, kids who had the least advantages, who were the ones who were going to be the most hurt by not having access to in-person instruction. And so conservatives for a long time were saying, this is a problem. What are we doing to our children by not putting them back in classrooms? And we're accused by progressives of not caring about kids, wanting to kill kids, you know, what have you. And now, of course, two years in, we are getting data back that is absolutely devastating about what has happened to kids. And that because of this polarization that we talked about earlier, sometimes there's not even a willingness to acknowledge that the other side's anxieties and concerns might be valid. That you're concerned that online school just might not work out as well as in-person school for a lot of kids, and that's a trade-off we should have an honest conversation about. That's the sort of thing where if you say, nope, I don't want to acknowledge this as a problem at all, how dare you even mention it, you suddenly have a lot of voters in the middle who go, well, I'm a little worried about that too. And so if the only person who's going to talk about it are the republicans does that mean i'm a republican i think crime is another example of this where you know you might be somebody in the middle who you know you think that black lives matter and you you support the idea of making sure that people who are unarmed and are shot by police that there's justice there and yet you've also begun to hear of more carjackings in your city or what have you and and you think is even acknowledging this problem something that only one side wants to do, I'm worried about it. So if only Republicans are going to talk about it, I guess does that make me a Republican so I think voters in the center have begun to look a little more like Republicans, not because voters in the center are Donald Trump, build the wall, et cetera, types, but if they feel like their concern just in general is dismissed as irrational, well, where else are they going to turn?
2: I often say I disagree with the policies on the right, you know, pretty uniformly. I'm you know, pretty strong and progressive, but there is, in my experience, a little bit more room to try to ask tough questions about some of the, the newfangled thinking. And if you are on the left, there's less room. And so I think when there's less room, there's less people. But I wonder how, what do you think about our friends on the right. There does seem to be this move for the conservative party to try to become the party of the multiracial working class, uh, which is to move rightward on some of the cultural issues, but to call it parents' rights, you know, or we're not saying that they're opposed to transgender folks, but they do say, hey, parents' rights on that stuff. So I think that all of the moves to the right on culture, they've marketed pretty well as parents' rights or something else, but they also seem to be moving left on economics anti-big business, you know, pro-tariffs, anti-globalization, anti-global trade. That seems to be a formula they may think is working for them, but they sure have alienated and pissed off a bunch of people, the MAGA crowd. And the level of fear that I hear from Democrats about democracy and rule of law, the level of concern that I hear from Democrats about the rise of white nationalism and race-related violence is really, really high. And I wonder, as you talk to your Republican uh, friends and colleagues, um, what are they getting right and wrong? And from a polling point of view, where are there some dangers for for them if they try to build a, a governing coalition?
1: I think one of the biggest challenges Republicans are going to face is that Republicans, by and large, really still like Donald Trump. I mean, his he's viewed quite favorably among Republicans. As long as he remains the figurehead of the party, he brings with him enough sort of baggage and enough focus on the wrong things that it it does make it harder for Republicans to be able to continue to build that kind of coalition that you were just talking about, that is maybe a little more economically centrist, that is a little more socially conservative, but but more multiracial as well. Um, Now, granted, Donald Trump was at the top of the ticket when Republicans made big gains in South Florida, Central Florida, South Texas back in 2020. And and some of those gains look to be solidified and built upon in 2022. But the Republican Party's problem is that on the one hand, There's no sense of like who or what comes after Donald Trump. But we also know that the vast majority of Americans don't necessarily want Donald Trump to run for president again. They don't think of him very favorably. And so I think that Republicans are not interested in elevating voices that are anti-Trump, but they are okay with voices that are just not about Donald Trump. It's possible to win a Republican primary, even if Donald Trump doesn't like you very much if you don't turn your campaign into an I'm an anti-Trump, never-Trump crusader trying to save my party, that's dead on arrival in the GOP. But you can say I want to be about other things. And I think that's the way that Republicans begin to turn the page a little bit and begin to explore what does a post-Trump party look like. If they're unable to do that and it's just MAGA all the way down. I do still think you have the generational problems that I've been writing about for a decade, where for a lot of younger voters, Donald Trump is just very much not where they're at, and they're taking up a bigger and bigger and bigger share of of the political pie with each passing election. So it's not sustainable forever for the Republican Party to be the party of Donald Trump. The question is, what's the exit strategy? And it's not a never-Trump disavowal. But is there a way to build on that kind of more economically centrist, still socially right of center coalition to not alienate people, but also not make fealty to Donald Trump the price of entry?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Do you think that DeSantis could beat Trump?
1: So when we have tested head to head matchups, Trump still wins. But DeSantis, at least at this point, in our way too early to take them seriously, Republican primary polls, is is out in the lead. Um, so DeSantis at the moment seems the strongest, but I also think we assume a higher profile for someone like Ron DeSantis because you and I live in the cable news world. Every time he, you know, sneezes down in Florida. It gets covered on air because people view him as the sort of heir apparent to Trump. But you'd be surprised at how many Republicans nationwide have, have a pretty loosely formed view of him. Oh, he fights the media. Oh, he kept Florida open during COVID. But they don't really know that much about him. You've got a long way to go to the 2024 mm-hmm. primary.
2: Two more questions. One, should Biden drop out?
1: When you ask voters, do you want to see Joe Biden run for president again? A majority say no. And when you ask Americans, do you want to see Donald Trump run for president again? Americans say no. But when you ask Democrats, a majority, not a robust majority, but a majority of Democrats say, sure, I'd like to see Biden run again. And same thing with the Republican side. If both Biden and Trump decide to run, we are likely to see a rematch, at least according to the polls at this point. But that's also not what most Americans would like to have as their options, In 2024, I think Democrats have a similar problem to Republicans in that you know you have a candidate that can say credibly, "Hey, I won. I know how to win." And for Republicans, that's complicated by the fact that so many Republicans believe Donald Trump ought to have been the rightful winner of the 2020 campaign. That's a whole other can of worms. But both Biden and Trump can try to claim this mantle of, "Well, I know how to win," and in a moment where we're so polarized and we're so worried about the other side taking power, are we okay compromising on, I'll support a candidate I don't like that much because I think they can win? That may be the thing Biden has going for him most. It's unclear to me who else on the Democratic side can make a better claim to say, no, no, I'm actually the one that knows how to win. So look, you know, final question
2: just is, how do we begin to heal some of this stuff? Like, how can we start to depolarize some of these conversations i mean i feel this kind of retreat into hostile camps that's the feeling that i get and that scares me because you know elections can resolve things in countries like you go vote and people accept the outcome of the vote and you move on you try to govern you vote again next time or election if it's contested enough and neither side will concede suddenly the election can be the precursor to real chaos. And so I just really worry. And, and I wonder, uh, do, do you share those worries? And what do you wish people were doing more of or less of to try to get us back towards something that's maybe a little bit more workable as a country?
1: Well, I, th- I think the rebuilding of spaces in our society where we can put down our political arms is really important. You know, you've watched the politicization of churches, the politicization of workplaces, places where people used to be able to build social bonds and perhaps leave their political identities at the door. Some of that feels like it's been going away lately. And I think there is simultaneously a heightened anxiety and anger in the public, but also an exhaustion. You know, in in the most recent survey I did at my firm, Echelon, we asked people for the qualities they were most looking for in leaders and in candidates. And the number one characteristic that almost half of respondents said was absolutely necessary was someone who seeks to unify the country. So I think there's an appetite there for leaders who unify, for the creation and or reclaiming of spaces where people don't have to have their political armor on constantly. I think the demand is out there. It's just a question of, is any leader going to step up to the plate and push for it? And it doesn't have to be somebody running for president, but are you as a leader of a church, are you as a leader of a workplace, are you as the leader of a social club or community, going to push to try to create a space where people can all come together and focus on community and not politics, that, that rebuilding those bonds as we become more fragmented and isolated, I think is how you build the foundation of fixing a lot of the other stuff that we've talked about.
2: I think that that's right. And I, I just really appreciate you and the work that you do. I, you, you, none of us are going to do well without good data, without good information, without good polling. And you're one of the best, and we appreciate you being on, on Common Ground.
1: Thank you, Van. We see the beauty of hope, that spirit,
2: It's so beautiful.
0: Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp. To welcome them to the Golden Door.
2: To the that people think that pollsters are up to no good and in on some crazy conspiracy, I think it's very hard to say that she's that way. And I think her argument that most pollsters are trying to get it right, I found that to be very compelling. It's really good to talk to somebody who's got an objective view because she's talked to enough people, polled enough people that she can really see both sides. And she's also a good, strong Republican. I think that's the goal. Having enough information about everything that's going on that you can have your own opinion, but understand the other side it should be the ideal. And I think that uh, she points in that direction. I can't tell you how shocking it is to me whenever I actually sit down and listen to a conservative podcast or an ultra far left blog and realize, oh, okay, there's a very different set of sources and data. There are reports I didn't know about, there are news events that. Weren't covered in my favorite outlets. All that stuff, as shocking as this, when I discovered and, and consumed that media, I think it makes me stronger in my own point of view. And I think it also makes me a better problem solver for the people I care about. I just think we got to recognize that the other side are human beings too, which is not to say that we should let them win or excuse inexcusable, but it's just to say maybe we should be asking different questions. Why? are people feeling the way that they're feeling? And if the answer every time is they're just evil bigots, that probably is not a sufficient answer. I think we've got to stop accepting that the default assumption that the other side is just a bunch of terrible people can't be right because that's their assumption about us, whatever side you're on. The assumption is that you're a terrible person, that all of the things that you're saying are just pretext for your own greed and meanness and laziness and stupidity and evil. So I don't think that's true about the people on my team. I don't think we have to believe it's true about everyone on, on the other team. So I think that we need bigger hearts. You know, smart with no heart, can get you in some dangerous places. I want to understand the people in this country, the ones I like, the ones I don't like, the ones I agree with, the ones I don't agree with, the ones I vote against, the ones I vote for. I just want to have a better understanding because my suspicion is that with better understanding, I'll do a better job at getting the better answers. And with better understanding, I might only have to fight you on three things instead of 30. And I'd frankly rather fight you on three than 30 because the time I'm not fighting you on the other 27, we might be able to work together to get something done. And so that's the point of, I think, pollsters like Kristen. It's definitely the point of this podcast. So thank you for listening this time and we look forward to talking to you again real soon. This is Van Jones on Common Ground. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Taylor Williamson, Adesua Agbonile, and Lindsay Credible. Our managing producers are Laura D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for this show is led by Alice Zoe. Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Moraes, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Alex John Burns, Seven McDonald, Drew Swinderman, Brianna Jones, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarron, Joe McMillan, Steph Walkeen, Vanessa Redbert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louis, and Chris Jockerman. Hey, Prime members,
0: you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey.
2: I feel like I was blindsided because it's a competition show